Dear listener, we have now come to article 9 of the Apostles' Creed. In this article, the Christian confesses, I believe, in holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. It is noteworthy to see that this confession about the Church follows the confession, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It is not without significance that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in connection with the Church. The existence of the Church is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of men. He gathers a Church of all generations, tongues and nations. He sees to it that Jesus' suffering and death bear fruit by making sinners partakers of the salvation merited by Christ. We notice that the Christian does not say, I believe in the Church, but rather believes that there is a Church. He believes in God and in Christ. He does not believe in the Church. The Christian does not base his faith on the Church, as if the Church would be able to save us. Such is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, namely that the Church will secure your salvation as long as you comply with her dictates. The Christian believes in the existence of a Church. He or she specifically believes in the existence of one Church, one Holy Catholic Universal Christian Church. In this world there is a church. The church exists amidst the world and strange from God, consisting of a people who fear God, believe in Christ and anticipate the eternal salvation. The word church is not such a suitable description of what the church is. The word church is too reminiscent of either the building organization and denomination. Therefore, the designation congregation is more biblical than the designation church. The church is not made of wood and stone, but rather she consists of living people. It is the gathering of all true believers. All believers in the world are identified as the church. Jesus promises in Matthew 16, verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word church does not point at a massive building or to a large number of people. It points to the gathering together of the believers. It can also describe a small house church, as for instance, in Romans 16, verse 5, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The word congregation is always used in the book of Acts and the letters of the apostles. It is a translation of the Greek word ecclesia, which means a gathering of the people. In Greek cities, a herald would summon the citizens to assemble for a public discussion. This assembly is called the Congregation. The Christian Church, or rather the Church of Christ, 
is an assembly of people who have been called into fellowship by God. They are the citizens of God's kingdom who have been called forth from the inhabitants of the world. We do not naturally belong to the Church of Christ, but rather to the fallen generation of Adam. The Bible therefore speaks of the Church as the cult, the ecclesia. God has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Although there are various churches with different names and views, in reality there is but one church. It is one family. Her members are all brothers and sisters, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Ephesus 3 verse 15. The Apostle writes regarding the identity of believers in Ephesians 4 verse 5 and 6, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. They constitute the brotherhood of the Church of Christ. The Church is a gathering of people who are journeying toward their eternal salvation. And the Lord added to the Church daily such as should be saved. That is what we read in Acts 2 verse 47. After all, like the patriarchs, they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11. The Apostles' Creed speaks of a holy and Catholic, universal Christian church. These adjectives describe the character of the church. The Christian church is holy. The word holy in the Bible has the meaning of being set apart and consecrated unto the service of the Lord. The Sabbath, the firstborn, the people of Israel, Mount Zion, the temple, and all the instruments of the temple are designated as holy, that is set apart for the service of the Lord. They belong to the Lord are selected for his service and are therefore holy. In the New Testament, believers are called saints. In his letter to the Christians at Corinth, Paul therefore writes, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. The Apostle addresses Christians as those who are called to be saints. They have been called by God out of the masses of the world to be God's particular property. They are, according to the verse of Peter, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peter calls them saints in Christ Jesus. They are not holy in themselves, but rather they are sanctified in Jesus Christ. They are made holy because of being inwardly renewed by the Holy Spirit and the washing away of sins through the blood of Christ. 
The word holy defines for us the nature of the church. The church consists of people who have been called out by God from a sinful world that has rejected God. Their sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit has renewed their nature. The church is therefore a holy Christian church, a people set apart by God. The Christian church is Catholic or universal. That means that she is no longer limited to the descendants of Abraham. For she consists of men of every people, race and language. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Romans 10 verse 12. In Christ the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, between slaves and free men, as well as between men and women, has disappeared. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 28. There is no racism in the church. The ancient words of Genesis 22 verse 18 have been fulfilled and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The church has become worldwide in scope. The church of Christ is universal and therefore not limited to either a particular nationality, race or skin color. As the great shepherd of the sheep, Christ gathers his congregation from all nations. Upon the conclusion of the history of this world, there will be a church from all peoples, languages and nations. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 7 verse 9. Finally, the church is Christian. The church is Christ's church. He bought his church, not with silver or gold, but with his own blood. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your thin conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, the verses 18 and 19. These believers had once been the devil's captives and slaves, but Jesus redeemed them. He paid a ransom for them. They are the wages upon his labor. Jesus is the head of the church, and he is the head of the body. Colossians 1 verse 18. The early Christians confessed, Jesus is curious, that is, he is Lord. It was the highest title one could ascribe to a person in the culture of the ancient East. Jesus was for Christians the undisputed Lord of all things, and then particularly of the church. It was an inexpressible privilege to belong to him. 
No one can assume that position without dishonoring Christ. The Pope of the Roman Catholic Church appropriates to himself the title that he is the head of the Church of Christ on earth. It has been said, in so doing, he beheaded the Church. However, we confess that just as the man is the head of the woman, Jesus is the head of the Church. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The Church is Christ's Church. No Pope, no earthly king or ruler may and can say, I am also king of the Church. In the Church, Christ is King and Lord. He rules there and no one else. Jesus has said, One is your Master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Matthew 23, verse 8. The Church has a task in the world. The Church has been commissioned to, by God to proclaim the Gospel to all people and nations and to instruct and nourish her members through the Word. How can she fulfill that task in a world where nations are often ruled by governments that do not recognize Christ as King of the Church? How often this results in conflict, oppression and persecution? But in the midst of all this opposition, the Church is God's instrument of spreading the gospel of Christ in a lost world. In the Bible, the Church is called the Body of Christ, as well as the Temple of the Holy Spirit in which God dwells. In connection with the sin of fornication, the Apostle asks the Christians in Corinth, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. And in verse 19 he says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which, which is in you? These names teach us that the Church is so much more than either a building or an organization. The Church is an assembly of people who are the body of Christ and in whose hearts the Holy Spirit dwells. These are spiritual matters that are invisible to us. We cannot say, the Holy Spirit dwells in this man or woman, and not in that man and that woman. We see that which is visible, but God alone beholds what lives in the heart. Nevertheless, invisible graces does not remain hidden. In one's walk of life it will become visible, who is a member of Jesus' spiritual body and in whose heart the Holy Spirit dwells. Jesus taught, ye shall know them by their fruits, Matthew 7, verse 16. The invisible work of the Holy Spirit becomes visible in the world when believers form a congregation, that is, when they come together to pray, sing, hear God's word, and provide for the poor. Thus, wherever the ministry of the Apostles was blessed, congregations were instituted, office bearers were appointed, and the place of worship was established. 
In the apostolic epistles we read of shepherds and teachers, elders and deacons. Ephesians 4 verse 11. As for the elders, a distinction is made between teaching elders and ruling elders. We read about this distinction in Acts 11 verse 30 and in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. Regarding the, regarding the deacons, we read that they assisted the poor. 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, 10 and 12. When Paul writes a letter to the congregation of Philippi, he addresses it to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Philippians 1 verse 11. The church thereby became and becomes visible in the world. Therefore we speak of both a visible and an invisible church. The visible church is that which becomes manifest when people profess the name of Jesus Christ. Together they constitute the visible church. This becomes visible when she assembles in her church buildings, forms a community and ministers to one another. The invisible church is that aspect of the church only seen and known by God. It consists of the hidden work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, whereby people are born again and believe in Christ. The visible church with her offices, the ministry of preaching and teaching, and her care for the needy, constitute the divinely ordained manifestation of the Christian church in the world. The scriptures call the visible church the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. The visible church manifesting herself in the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, the education of the youth, the care for the needy, and overseeing life and doctrine of believers is God's chosen instrument to bring sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, as well as to nourish and instruct believers. John Calvin's famous and entirely biblical saying is, whoever has God as his father must have the church as his mother. That is how we ought to think about the church. God's redemptive work becomes visible in the church. The church manifests herself in the world as an entity that differs radically from the kingdoms of the earth. She is a spiritual entity, for she is a revelation of the kingdom of God. It is thus a kingdom amid the kingdoms of the world. She has Jesus as her Lord and King and lives in conformity to his commandments. She has no national borders, races and languages. The question follows, what relationship is there between that spiritual kingdom and the secular, earthly powers and kingdoms? I believe it fit to say something here about the relationship between church and state. 
Scripture shows us that both are of divine origin and have divinely mandated responsibilities. The government is called God's servant, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Romans 13 verse 4. God, who rules the world as king, has established governments and powers that rule over men in his name. To that end, he has vested them with authority. Although powers and governments may think that they derive their power from themselves, it is God who has given them that power. They have been vested with their power to protect the good and to punish evildoers. The Church is a divine and spiritual institution. Her existence originates in God. Jesus rules as the King over the Church. Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2 verse 6. Since is the Church of Christ, built upon the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2 verse 20. She is called the wife, the body, the bride and the church of Christ. The church is the manifestation, a revelation of God's redeeming intervention in a fallen world. The church is God's property. God gathers unto himself from a fallen human world a church chosen to eternal life. He initiated this work immediately after the fall of man and will continue to be disengaged until the last day, the day of Jesus' return. We can therefore view the church as consisting of people who have been called by God to be his particular property. The Church of Christ is of divine origin and has a spiritual character. Scripture shows that church and state have different tasks. The church is a society or community that is distinct from all other authority structures known on earth. In obedience to Christ's will, believers unite with other believers to constitute a congregation by making a public profession of their faith. Faith does not remain hidden in their hearts and also not limited to the living room. Instead, it is openly confessed and practiced by a Christian walk of life. The calling of the church is to bear witness to her faith in the world. Jesus gave his disciples and in them to his entire church, the commission, ye shall be witnesses unto me. Acts 1 verse 8. In the arena of the world, the church testifies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. She testifies of his death and resurrection and declares, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. The church is engaged in the world 
among men to preach to them the gospel and to make them disciples of Christ. Jesus commanded, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28, the verses 90 and 20. The state may not hinder the church in this, but rather its calling is to promote this work. Besides the church, there is another society on earth, differing in nature and character from the church, namely the state or civil government. It has been instituted by God to uphold justice, order and discipline in the world. The question is, how do these two powers relate to each other? Are they meant to assist each other or to be in conflict with each other? Scripture teaches that both societies are established by God to accomplish his plan of salvation. The church's calling is to preach the gospel and to, to promote the spiritual well-being of men. The state promotes the physical well-being of people. And its calling is to keep the world, the world from descending into chaos by maintaining law and order. The church will thus be enabled to accomplish her task in the world. The church and the state represent two different kingdoms. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. John 18 verse 36. The ancient Scots said to King Charles, There are two kingdoms in Scotland. There is the kingdom of Scotland, of which you are king. But there is also the kingdom of God, in which Christ reigns as king. It resulted in war and persecution. The state or civil government does have a calling to protect the church so that Christians can freely profess their faith. However, the state has no authority in the church. Conversely, although the church has no jurisdiction in the state, nevertheless, she must teach the state. She must stir up the government to rule according to God's laws. She must pray for all levels of government and must teach Christians to honor and obey their government. However, there is always a limit to the extent of the church's obedience to the government. In this, if the state demands disobedience to God and actions contrary to his commandments, the Christians must obey God more than the state. When the Jewish authorities demanded that the apostles stop speaking about Jesus, Peter refused to oblige, for he said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Acts 5 verse 29 In the past and in some countries today, this has led to oppression of the Christian church 
and even the persecution of Christians. The Apostles' Creed speaks about the communion of saints. The Christian believes in the communion of saints. The word used in the Greek New Testament for the communion of Christians is koinonia, which means to participate, to partake. It is expressive of solidarity. A common cause unites Christians. The communion of saints is a union rooted in their being, being united to a person, namely Jesus Christ. The believer is, first of all, united to Christ, and in Christ, united to other believers. Christ is at the very center of the communion of saints. A person's faith is a faith that first and foremost unites him or her to Jesus Christ. However, it also unites the believer to every other believer. The redemption the believer has experienced in Christ is not a self-centered redemption. It is a redemption that one desires to share with others. Believers long to speak of, hear of, sing about Christ our Lord and praise God with fellow Christians. The believer will not isolate himself. He or she will never be a solitary Christian. The Christian seeks fellowship and finds it with other believers. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ, but also with each other. The children of God all over the world are united to Christ with the same faith, the same love and the same hope. They will all have escaped the same peril and have been saved by Jesus from sin, death and destruction. They have all been cleansed from their sins in the blood of Jesus and are anticipating the eternal salvation of soul and body. They also have the same struggle with sin, the world and the devil. They fight the same battle with the remains of the old man. They have so much that binds them together. When they meet, speak, pray and sing, as well as listen to the preaching of God's word and partake of the Lord's Supper, they do experience this spiritual communion. It is a communion that not only leads to sharing each other's hope, faith and love, but also to the sharing of each other's joy and sorrow. Paul writes, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Romans 12, verse 15. It is a communion that even prompted the young Christian congregations in Jerusalem to share their property with the poor. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which they possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Acts 4, verse 32. The apostolic epistles continually admonish Christians to maintain communion with one another. 
I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 3. The division among Christians is a serious indictment of the Church. It contradicts Jesus' prayer for unity, that they all may be one. John 17, verse 28. That is what Jesus prayed. It does not mean, however, that we must unite with believers who deny the fundamental truth of Christianity. However, it does mean that we must seek unity with all who profess the doctrines of the Bible. Despite the sad division among the different denominations, we nevertheless continue to believe in the communion of saints. If it were possible to gather all the true believers of the world together in one place and let them speak to each other about their hope, faith, love and struggles, they would still feel united, even though they never before had seen or known each other. In heaven, this communion will be fully realized and experienced. Therefore, we confess, I believe in holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. <laughs>